Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at the very end of God's revelation and what He has given to us in His Word. Throughout the history of the church, there has always been a preoccupation with heaven, a longing for heaven, and a strong realization that this world is not our home. The cry of Hebrews 11:13 and 16, where the saints would be described as strangers and exiles on the earth who desire a better country that is a heavenly one. One of my earliest memories as a Christian was from Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That is the cry of the psalmist that would go on in chapter 73, where he would say, Whom I have in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Why don't we long for heaven like this? We have become very earthbound creatures living for the present. We are a people longing for instant gratification expressed in our materialism, our comfort, our narcissistic indulgence. We need a divine perspective, don't we? We need a, a vision from above. We need a picture of what really matters. Consider the benefits of what, it, what happens when we long for heaven. Luke chapter 12, verse 34. It says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I just realized, I told you we're sticking to one passage, and here I am jumping around. This is my introduction. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These are the words of our Lord. Paul said this, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comprehension. When... Life is difficult in this one. We will find glory and rest in the next one. Longing for heaven allows the Christian to endure great trials. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope has fixed on Him, purifies himself just as He is pure. Longing for heaven and for Christ's return protects the Christian from sin. These are all the benefits of when the Christian longs for heaven. So why don't you now turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21 and I want to give you this vision that the seer, also known as the Apostle John, has given to us in his Apocalypse, also known as the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. The Word of God says this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, <clears throat> 
the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let's pray. We need God's help this morning. Father, these are precious words. The Spirit of God, you have given them to us. Help us to understand it. Help us to understand what it means. Help us to see the glories of heaven. Help us to see Christ who is there. Help us to be taken upward as this life beats us down. Oh, bring us relief by storing our treasure not in this place but in the next place. Oh God, I pray, would you be with your people this morning that this time would build them up, that it would encourage them, that it would strengthen them. Oh, I pray for your preacher this morning that you would give him clarity. Oh, I pray, give me clear words, not confusing words. May I be understood well, I pray. Guard me from error. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So really, this is a sermon that is part two of what we began last week. Where last week we looked at entertaining heaven. What we're not to do. We're not to be entertaining heaven with all the different ways that this world wants us to think about heaven. Instead of entertaining heaven, we want to enter heaven. And today we're going to look at five reasons why Christians will be enjoying heaven. You ever wondered what will heaven be like? Well, this text tells us exactly what heaven will be like. And we are going to look at five reasons why we will enjoy heaven. And the first reason is because of what we will see. Because of what we will see in verses 1 and 2. John begins by saying these, this phrase, And then I saw. John is continuing a series of things that he's seen in his apocalypse. In the book of Revelation chapter 20, there are these seven bold judgments. And this is that final scene where John now describes he sees something and he calls it the new heaven and the new earth. Now, previously I mentioned that when the Christian dies, they are immediately in the presence of Jesus. Their bodies remain on the ground, but they are immediately ushered into and to be at home with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Philippians 1.23. This place where the Spirit goes is known by theologians as the intermediate state because it immediately ushers you in 
to be with Christ. But that is not the final dwelling place. The intermediate state is in contrast to the eternal state. The final, final, final place. Because in God's schedule, there's still a lot of things that need to happen before we reach that final, final, eternal state. And what are those things? First, Jesus will come to take His church. This is known as the rapture where believers will receive their resurrected bodies. In Revelation 20, verse 4 and 6, it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. Next, there will be this great tribulation period, this seven-year tribulation period where God's righteous judgments on the earth will be poured out unlike anything that we have ever seen. And at the end of the tribulation period, Jesus will come and He will begin His rule on the earth, physically on the land, and rule for a thousand years, exactly as Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6 tells us. And then after that millennial reign of Christ, it's called millennial because millennial means thousand, after that reign of Christ, Satan is then set loose for a period of time. And then, they, then Satan, along with all unbelievers, will then be judged in the great white throne judgment where unbelievers will receive their resurrection bodies to be condemned to an eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 and 15. That is what we would commonly call hell. Those are the final stages of the end of human history. But for the Christian who dies... If you were to die today and you are in Christ, you will be immediately entered into the presence of Christ. You're in this intermediate state. But all these things you must wait for. All these things must take place before we reach chapter 21, which is the eternal state. It's called the eternal state because it is when there will be no more changes. It's the final change. The final enemy is defeated. The final battle is over. The final judgment is complete. The final resurrection of the body is given. And now we are finally home. And so what will we see in this eternal state of this place that John tells us? The first thing we'll see is a recreated place. We're going to see a recreated place. The scene is described as a new heaven... And a new earth. My question is, what happened to the old earth? If it's a new heaven and a new earth, what happened to the old earth? Where it says here that the first earth, that would be the old earth, it passed away. It passes away. What does it mean that it would pass away? Some believe that the earth will be completely destroyed in an intense ball of an implosion. Some kind of nuclear implosion or destruction. And there's many texts that may say this. Uh, the, the most famous one is Second Peter chapter three, verse 10, and I can turn there, but if you want to turn there, you can follow along. Second Peter chapter three, verse 10, it says this, "But then when the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up." It seems to say that when the Lord returns, the earth will be destroyed with this intense heat like a melting. And all of it will be consumed by fire. And so some have said that there is this, like a, a planet imploding that takes place and everything will be 
destroyed and then recreated. Now, I don't, I don't think that's what is going to take place in the end, that the earth is going to implode and be destroyed. When Peter talks about the earth passing away and its elements being destroyed, he's making a comparison of, a, of, of the second destruction. There's a first destruction that took place on the earth. It's mentioned in verse 6. Or in verse uh, 5. Yeah, verse 6. Through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. The first destruction of the world was with water. But then there's a second destruction that is by fire. The first destruction did not destroy the world. How do we know it didn't destroy the world? Because we still have Noah. And we have Mrs. Noah. And we have Shem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we have Mrs. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we have the animals. What was destroyed was the surface of the earth. The, earth. the surface of the earth was destroyed. But the earth itself was kept intact. And just like the first destruction changed the surface of the earth, the second destruction also changed the surface of the earth. It will be destroyed not by water this time, but by fire. So it's really not a destruction. There was a cataclysmic flood of water in the first. There's going to be a cataclysmic cosmic destruction by fire upon the world. But it's not an implosion. Instead, it's a recreation, a renewal. And God will not dispose of His creation that He called good in Genesis 1-2. Rather, God will recreate the earth as we know it. But the other reason that I think that this is not just a destruction, but a renewal, because of the word new. He says, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The word new refers not to new as in time, but to new as in quality. It's a word that, it's a word that speaks of recreation, something familiar. When someone makes something new, it means that it is better than what was previously there. It is better than the old. And we all know what this means. It's coming up. You will all get something new pretty soon. You will have a new car, some of you. You may have something big like a new house or something small like new shoes. Now, when I get a new pair of running shoes, I don't ask the question, will it have laces? No, because I know my old shoes had laces, so the new shoes will also have laces. When you get a new car, you won't ask the question, well, will it have wheels? No, you're familiar with cars. They all have wheels. So in the same way, when we receive this new earth, it will be the same, but better. There's going to be familiar things. There's going to be what's called continuity, a continuation of all that is familiar, but something better. God is not shaking his head and saying, you know, I wasted all this time creating this world and I'm going to destroy it all and start from scratch. No, God is recreating the earth to be something much better. It's a recreated place. But secondly, it's also a redeemed place. Notice what he says, that this place that, that passes away when the new heaven and the new earth come, he mentions this little phrase, and there is no longer any sea. There's no sea. What's the deal with that? Is God against the oceans and because there's sharks there and all of that? A lot of people are afraid of the seas. Um, but the book of Revelation refers to the sea five times. And it describes it as the origin of evil. It describes it as the nations that persecute Christians come out of the sea in 12.1. 
It's known as the place of the dead in chapter 20, verse 13. It's the location of the world's idolatrous trade route. When merchants come around and travel, they always go through the sea, spreading their idolatry. And it's also referred to as a body of water. So in the new heavens and in the new earth, when God says he removes the sea, what he means is that he will remove everything that we know that harm us, evil, persecution, idolatry, death, all that would separate us. Because what do the seas do? They separate nations. They separate nations. But with the removal of the sea, there will no longer be any separation. All the nations will be joined. The people groups will be joined. Today, we are living in a world that is groaning. It's, it's currently under this bondage and it needs to be set free. In Romans chapter 8, verse 19 to 22, Paul says this, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's the first earth. That's this world that we know. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation is groaning and suffering the pains of childbirth even until now. The creation, this earth, this world that we know it, there's something wrong with it. We feel it. It's in bondage to something called sin. And there's nothing that we can do to remove it. We need someone, a hero, to come and release us. That's the feeling, that's the sense that we have. This place that God created in Genesis 1-2 was called good. From Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation chapter 20, that entire world is cursed. But then in the very last two chapters in Genesis, uh, Revelation 21 and 22, He will then make it all new because it will be redeemed. It will be set free from that curse of sin. So it is a redeemed place. But thirdly, it's also a reuniting place. The third picture that we see of heaven is that it's a reuniting place. Look in verse 2. He says this, And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorning for her husband. It's describing a place, a real city. There's a city in heaven. There's a city in the new heavens and the new earth. This new city has a name. It's called the new Jerusalem, meaning that there was, it's a continuation of the old Jerusalem, a place of God's people. Where God dwelt, it's the name that God has given to this new capital city. And it's described. But notice how the city is personified. It's where the people of God will be. But notice how it says, this city is a bride adorned for her husband. Friends, heaven will be full of joy because the bride will be joined to the groom. The bride is summoned from heaven to come down to the earth to be adorned so that the bride will now be with Christ. It's a picture of the glorious union of heaven and earth, of the bride coming to the groom. This is what the, the one on the earth is saying in verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. And so he tells John, write, for these words are faithful and true. Remember what Jesus said to the troubled disciples 
He said, for where I go, for where I go, you cannot come. For where I go, I am preparing a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is preparing a place for his bride. One of the things that he does in the preparation for his bride is he's recreating everything. He's making all things new. And if you stop for a moment and think like an ancient Near Eastern Jewish person, this entire scene is really a picture of a wedding. MacArthur comments that the entire scene is a wedding where the bride is promised. The bride is promised. God, the Father, pledged the people to be with the Son. God promised from long ago all that I have given to the Son. And Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me, I will not cast out in John chapter 6. God has chosen a people before the foundation of the world to be with the Son. That's the first stage. And then after the, that, then the bride is enjoying this marriage supper with the Lamb. With the Son. That's Revelation 19, 7 to 9. And then the final stage would be when the bride walks down the aisle from heaven. Coming down from heaven adorned to be with her husband. See, this place, while new, is really a recreated place. It's still the earth, but it's new. Creation, as we know, will remain. That means a couple things. Animals will be in heaven. Vegetations will be in heaven. There's going to be plants, streets. There will be walls. There will be rooms, just as there are on the earth. And I say this because when we entertain heaven, we look to entertainment to tell us what heaven is like. And what they tell us heaven is like is we will be the disembodied spirits flying around, but we will be in heaven walking on streets of gold with walls, with rooms, with visits with one another. And it will be full of joy because it's a union. It's a marriage of heaven and earth of the bride with Christ. That's why we will long for heaven is because what we will see. But secondly, another reason why we will look forward to heaven is because of what we will experience. Look at verse 3. Notice what we will experience in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. Why will we enjoy heaven? We will enjoy heaven because of what we will experience there. And you know what we will experience in heaven? Is this. Perfect. Perfect fellowship. Perfect fellowship with God. There will be this unhindered fellowship with God. Notice what happens in verse 3. God is the one who initiates this relationship. He says, He will be the one to dwell among them. Dwell among men. This is really a fulfillment of what Jesus prayed. This is an answer to Jesus' prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God is going to dwell with man. The bringing down of heaven to the earth is God dwelling with man. And then observe the language. What is dwelling with man? It doesn't say that God is dwelling, but the tabernacle of God is among men. The tabernacle was what separates God. It was the meeting place. But that only the priest was allowed to enter in. But now, that place, that holy place, is now going to dwell with man. It's a loaded phrase that speaks of the secured tabernacle. 
that was inaccessible to the public, but now it's publicly open. God is allowing all peoples to dwell with Him because He will dwell with them. And here's the picture of this tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is the one who tabernacled with man. It's what John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is that same word tabernacle. Christ came on the earth to tabernacle, to be with us. And in this new heaven and new earth, now we will be with God. And God is going to be with us because of Christ. And we just sung of it. We just sung of it. We will continue to sing of it. The very name of God, Emmanuel, God with us. It is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where we will be with God freely. God is among men. God is dwelling with men. God is among men. Three times he repeats three prepositions to explain the dwelling of God. There is no barrier. There is no separation. There is no sea. There is no chasm. There is freedom with God to go to us and us to Him. Unhindered fellowship with God. And this is the centerpiece of the passage. This is really the centerpiece. Do not get caught up with other lesser things as great as they are. Think for the moment. Think with me for a moment. What is the greatest reality? What is your favorite doctrine? And I have many. Trust me, I do. What is the favorite or greatest reality that you can imagine as a Christian? Is it maybe you love the inerrancy of the Word of God, which I do. Maybe you love the power of the Holy Spirit, which I do. Maybe you love the atoning work of Jesus Christ, who removes sin, which I do. Maybe you love the sovereign election of God the Father, choosing a people before the foundation of the earth to be His, which I do. Maybe you love the justifying work of Christ towards unrighteous sinners, whereby He places His righteousness upon them and their sinfulness upon Him. And they receive Christ by faith. And I love that doctrine. But think with me. All of those things, as vitally important as they are, are meaningless if you don't have God in the end. What does justification mean if you don't have God in the end? What does the atonement mean if you don't have God in the end? Listen to what Peter says. He summarizes what we have when we have God. He says this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The very centerpiece of all doctrine, the very centerpiece is this. We get God in the end. That's the very center of what Revelation 21 says. We have fellowship with this one. This one that we have been far off from. This one that we have been separated from. We have Him. And He Himself dwells with us. And is with us. So we have fellowship with God freely. Whatever question you want to ask, you can speak with God directly. But not only will you have fellowship with God, you will have fellowship with the saints. There will be fellowship with the saints. Now, it's not so obvious here, but in the grammar, you can see it in verse 3, where it says this, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people. 
they shall be his people. It should really be translated, and they shall be his peoples. It's in the plural. And that's, that's significant because in heaven, there won't just be one people group. There are going to be many peoples. There's going to be many people groups. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, it says that there is this united joy around the Lamb. And they shall sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seas, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. Now stop for a moment and think, about, think with me. What language will we be singing in? What are we going to be speaking in in heaven? If we're going to be singing, what is that one voice? Have you ever thought about that? We may be speaking this one unified language, this language that we all spoke before God judged the nations and separated the nations. Remember, we all used to speak one language. And then God said, you know, you are full of yourselves. Stop making this great, long tower, this high tower to make a name for yourself. So God dispersed the nations. Remember in Genesis 11, he gave different languages. But even in our multiplicity of languages, there's evidence that we all came from one language. Why? Because the rules of grammar are the same in every language. And I don't mean to nerd out on you, but it just is. There's rules that are the same in every language, though we speak differently. In every language, there is a subject. In every language, there is a verb. In every language, there is a object or indirect object. Where did that come from? It's as if we used to come from one language. And then God separates us. In that time, there's going to be this ability that we will have where we will be able to communicate from a man from Morocco, a man from China, a man from wherever they may be. You know, one of the reasons we struggle with fellowship is we misunderstand each other. We, we, we misunderstand and we hurt each other because of our words. And sometimes we have great misunderstanding when there's a translation gap. Things are lost in translation. Have you ever traveled to a different country and visited other Christians? I have. I, I, I have visited other countries. I, and sometimes I, I, I've gone to church in other countries. And sometimes I wish I knew the language. I went to a church in Central Europe. And I wish I knew French. So I could have closer fellowship with those brothers and sisters. I wish I knew German. I wish I knew Italian. I've, I've been to India. And I fellowship with the brothers there in the very broken English that I, they had for me. I was able to experience fellowship. Imagine that I could freely speak like I speak in English, which is not very good anyway. But imagine if I could speak so clearly with another person from another nation. Imagine what fellowship will be like in heaven. Where you will speak from every tribe, tongue, and nation with this heavenly language, this heavenly tongue of some kind, and speak freely without misunderstanding and telling stories of how God has done a great work in their life. That's why I look forward to heaven. Because, because of this place, it's a reunion, it's a place where we will be experiencing unhindered fellowship with God and also unhindered fellowship with each other. Dear friends, we will enjoy heaven because of what we will experience. This unbroken fellowship with God and with His people. 
But next, we also will long for heaven, thirdly, because of what God removes. We will not only enjoy heaven because of what is there, but we will enjoy heaven because of what is not there. Look at what's not there in verse 4. He says this, And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. And there shall be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What is it that God removes? God removes sorrow. The first thing that God removes is sorrow. Now, this is a very familiar passage. You may have heard this passage read in funerals or memorial services. And it has become one of the most comforting verses in the entire book of Revelation. But there has been some misunderstanding in this passage. Some have come to believe that in heaven we will bring our sorrows with us. And that that sorrow that we will have in that eternal state will be the sorrows of regret. The things that we wish we would have done. And I can see why this would be the case, why some might believe that. Because sometime, at somewhere along the way, a man or a woman in their old age or in their great infirmity will come to the realization, I regret. I regret not talking to people more. I regret not being open with my children. I regret for spending so much time in the world instead of, of doing what really matters, being in the lives of people. You see how people would take this verse and say that we will bring that sorrow and that God would be there to wipe away every one of our tears. That's comforting, but I don't think that's what this means because in the context of what's taking place, the saints that are presented in this eternal state are those that have been persecuted. Those are the ones that have been mocked, stoned, and put to death in the great tribulation. Those that have received troubles and trials and mockeries. These are the ones that God says He will remove their sorrows. God will remove their pain. God will remove their suffering in that period of time. This phrase, wiping away tears, is really John alluding to an Old Testament passage in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. And this passage says, God, in the end, will say this, God will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. You see, Christians bear the reproach of Christ. There is a stigma that Christians bear, and it's one of hatred. When you become a Christian, there should be a cloak of this, and it's this. The world hates you. That's the cloak of what it means to be a Christian. The world will now be against you. So much so that in the great time of persecution and tribulation, the intensification of that hatred will rise. And so Jesus says He will remove their tears. In Isaiah 25, God will remove all their tears, wipe away their tears from all faces. But what I notice in John, verse 4, he doesn't quite quote Isaiah correctly. In Isaiah, it says, God will wipe away all their tears, plural. But in John, verse 4, it says this, And he 
shall wipe away every tear, singular, from their eyes. And you're thinking, well, why are you making a big deal of that? It's because this, the care of God is so great that the smallest offense that a believer receives because of their faith in Christ, no matter how big or no matter how small, God says He will wipe away. No matter what offense that you have borne because of your stand for Christ, God says He will wipe away. There is no offense that you have received because of your love for Jesus that will go unnoticed. Everything that you have gone through, everything that you have gone through because of your love for Christ, the Lord will remember. The smallest of tears, God will wipe away because His compassion is so great that He will wipe the big to the small. Secondly, not only will God remove sorrows, but He will remove death. The reason why sorrow, crying, and pain are removed is because death is swallowed up. It will be no more. And that's a reference to Genesis 3 when he says the first things have passed away. In verse 4, you see this. He says there will be no more death. There shall be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. And he says the first things, that means the first world, the first creation has been removed, has been recreated. A reference to this fallen creation that goes back to Genesis 3. But this new earth, this new creation, this new things that God, that He's making new, will no longer have this thing called death. Can you imagine that world? Can you imagine that place where there's no longer any sorrow or any death? A world without brokenness? A world without heartache? A world without people letting you down? And you may ask yourself, that's unbelievable. I can't. What if I told you that that world, where there is no heartache and when there is no sorrow, what if I told you that world is actually normal? That's actually the normal world. That's actually what it's supposed to be. But we have been living for so long in this place that we think this is normal. And God says, no, that's not normal. This is normal. Imagine this place. Steve Lawson was helpful in his book, Heaven Helpless. He says this, think of a world where there is no hospitals. Think of a world where there are no funeral homes. There are no grief counselors. Where there are no abortion clinics. Where there are no divorce courts. Where there are no bankruptcy courts where there is no teen suicide, where there is no sexually transmitted disease, where there is no missing children, where there is no drive-by shooting, where there is no rape, where there is no cancer treatment facilities, where there is no misunderstandings, where there is no hurt, feelings, that there are no financial shortfalls. In this new place, there will be no apologies. There will be no racism. There will be no crime. There will be no prisons. There will be no malnourishment. There will be no depression. There will be no emptiness. There will be no sadness. There will be no bad habits. That's normal, dear friends. That's what it's supposed to be. That's normal, but instead, 
We live in this world where people run from God. In this normal place of heaven, we run freely to God. A place where there is perfect fellowship with God. A place with man. And instead of confusion, there is clarity. And one of the things that God will not remove in heaven are people. I know you might be thinking, I want to be alone when I'm in heaven. And it's not going to happen. In heaven, there will be millions and millions and millions of people. There will be others that you will be around. They will talk with you. You will serve with them. You will work with them in tasks in this new Jerusalem, in this capital city. And I think about that. How does that work? How is it that I can be with another Christian in heaven... Are we going to be like the Borg, where we are all like robots, all marching in step together in unison? What happens to our wills? What happens to my favorites? Don't you have your favorites still? I think all of those things will be preserved. It's just that there will be giving and taking without sin. There will be a deference to one another. There will be a submission to one another. There will be what Jesus says, consider each other more important than yourselves. All those things will happen because there is no curse. There will be no conflict. There will be this perfect fellowship that exists in heaven. There will be efficiency in your work, in your job. There will be efficiency. Imagine how efficient the ancient world used to be. They were able to build a tower quickly because they spoke one language and were able to work with great efficiency. In this world, we don't like our jobs. In this world, sometimes we have to work two jobs. Sometimes we do jobs that we we have to for the sake of need because we are trying to put our children through college. And we do work that we don't want to do because we are laboring and toiling for that which we do not want to do. Imagine heaven where you will work and the conditions are perfect. You will do what God created you to do. What is it that you really want to do? Imagine doing that. But with joy and perfection and glory. It's what first... Corinthians 10, 13 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you will do it for the glory of God. Everything that we do, all the capacities that you have will be completed in this new place. Human ingenuity, labor are restored. Great things will be created in this new place. And so it's not a place of pure rest, it's a place of work. And it will be satisfying and joyful work. And that, my friends, will be normal. Your, your labors will be normal. You look forward to your work. And, and, and here's another thing that I thought about. You will never overwork. Some of you like to work so much so that it harms your family. It harms relationships. There will be perfect work-life balance in heaven. You will labor, but you will fellowship. You will praise. You will... All of those things. Because conflict will, will, conflict will be removed. Sorrow will be removed. Death will be removed. Crying will be removed. Our world is abnormally broken that we want to run from Christ. But really what we want to do is we want to run to Christ because that's where real relationships happen. We see a glimpse of this. We see a glimpse of real relationships that last. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, when He changes you, He calls you a new creature in Christ. You're new because you are going to be made new in the resurrection. You're going to be changed To become your true self, your perfect self. You're transformed now, but you will be completed in the end. 
Salvation begins this process of changing you, molding you, making you more into like Christ. And that's why we will look forward to heaven because in heaven, of what we will experience and what will happen in heaven and what God will remove in heaven. Fourthly, the fourth reason we will enjoy heaven is because who God saves. We'll enjoy heaven not just because of what God removes, but we'll enjoy heaven because of who God saves. Look at verse 6 and 7. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. I shall be his God and he will be my son. Here we see a picture of why we will enjoy heaven because of who God saves. He describes the kind of people that will be in heaven. Who's going to be in heaven? Here's who's going to be in heaven. The one who thirsts. This is the person whom God will save. The one who has thirsted for eternal life. And this is a clear allusion to Isaiah 55 when God is pictured as an ancient Near East water vendor. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, you have this. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You see the image? The image is of a water vendor telling people to come. Stop wasting your money on that which does not satisfy There are things that people want to have and it does not satisfy them. In fact, they will give everything to have it only in the end to lose what they really sought, which is eternal life. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? You see, there are people in this world that are longing for happiness, longing for pleasure, longing for whatever it takes And I will do whatever God wants me to do. I will obey and do whatever it takes. I will work and do whatever God wants me to do. How many laws do I have to obey God? How perfect do I have to be? And Jesus says, wait, I will give water to those and it will have no cost. See, the gift of eternal life has no price. That's why it's called a gift. It's something that you cannot work for. That's why the one requirement that must take place when you are showing that you really need Christ, is this is what happens to you. You thirst. You thirst. Now think of what that word means. When someone thirsts, that means they have reached the end of themselves. A picture of a person who is thirsting is a picture of someone who is dying. When a man is in the desert and he says he thirsts, that means he is about to die of dehydration. A person who is thirsty is one who is desperate. It's a picture and sign of a person dying. It means I have tried everything. I have drunk from every well there is. I have drunk from all these different wells and they are all polluted. They have not satisfied me. They have poisoned me. I want eternal life, but I can't find it except in this one. Lord Jesus, will you forgive me of all my sins? Give me this eternal water that you provide. You see, thirst is a picture of a person admitting that they are dying. It's a picture of death. What did Jesus say? On the cross. Didn't he say, I thirst? Thirst is a picture of a man dying. That means that I am about to die. A person who says, I thirst, is a picture. I have come to the end of myself. And so God says, to the one who thirsts, I will give the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. 
He supplies the one who, what Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor. The ones who have reached the end of themselves, who have become spiritually bankrupt and realized, I can't get to God on my own. I cannot do it. And so God gives them life. It's a picture of our greatest need, but not only the one that thirsts, but the one who overcomes. Verse 7, he says, He who overcomes shall inherit these things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the, the picture of the one in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. It's a picture of the one who has been persevering in spite of great persecution. That's who's going to be in heaven. Those who have not forsaken Christ, those who have stood for Jesus and have not abandoned the faith, those are the ones that are going to be in heaven. This is a great warning because today we are seeing people on our media that are, are being described as those who are Christians, but they are called deconstructed Christians. Christians who used to believe, but now are deconstructing their faith and reinventing themselves. And some of them, most of them, I would argue, are abandoning the faith. I hate to say it to, to those people, but those aren't the people that are going to be in heaven. Those people that abandon the faith were never saved to begin with. They are not the ones who are described as the overcomers, the ones that have persevered because God sustained them to overcome and to persevere. These are the ones that will inherit eternal life. But dear friends, are you looking forward to this heaven? Because this is what will be in heaven. People in heaven will be filled with those who, who were once thirsty but have now drunk from the waters of eternal life. You know, recently we had a baptism and in every baptism, our tradition has been to share testimonies. And I had the pleasure of reviewing a lot of these testimonies. I get them first along with Nick and Francis, so we review these testimonies. And as I look through all these testimonies from different ages, from children to older men and older women, they all have different stories. But the one thing they all have in common, that there was a hunger and a thirst for Jesus that they all had, and so imagine in heaven when we fellowship with one another. When you speak to the one who you couldn't speak to because they spoke a different language. And you ask them this question, why are you here? What brought you here? What will they say? I think they would say something like this. I was dying. I was thirsty. But Christ gave me water. Christ gave me eternal life. They might say this, I don't know. I know two things. I'm a great sinner. But Christ is a great Savior. I don't know. I don't know why I'm here. But I know that God is gracious to save. Now let me ask you, do you like being around people? Do you like being around God's people? Do you like being around God's people? Do you like to fellowship with people? Because there are Christians that I have encountered, they don't like being around people. They don't like fellowship. And it always strikes me as odd. Why is it that you don't like being around people? Because if you don't like being around people here, why would you want to be over there? Because you're going to be surrounded with people. Busting at the seams kind of people. You're going to be talking with all sorts of people. And if you find yourself averse to people, being around people, and you want to be always alone, there's something wrong. You may not be in the family of Christ. You may still be with the family below. You may not have drunk from this, this water that gives you life. You may need to ask yourself, am I going to heaven? Because all the things that I want, I want land. I want freedom from 
from people. I want to be alone. I want pleasure. You may have entertained a version of heaven that God says, that's not heaven. Because you may not have Christ. Lastly, the reason we enjoy heaven is because of who God rejects. Let me end here. The reason we will have joy in heaven because of who God rejects. Not only of who God saves, but who He rejects in verse 8. He says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and, and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is who will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. These people will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. He describes them as the cowardly, those who are fearful of people. That's what a cowardly person is. Why will those that are afraid of people be in hell? It's because he's describing those who did not take a stand for Christ, who were more afraid of what people thought than what God thought. They did not have the fear of God, but they had the fear of man. That's why they're described as cowardly. Then he says those that are unbelieving, that should probably be translated those who were unfaithful, those who were not loyal to Christ, who abandoned Christ when persecution arose. And then he describes a third group of people, the abominable. That means the ones that have polluted themselves. Those who have polluted themselves with sin. Then he describes those that were murderers, a picture of those whose hearts have filled with bloodlust. Then sorcerers, those who have participated in the occult or witchcraft. And then he ends with this, idolaters and liars. He ends this list with idolaters and liars. Why is idolatry such a great sin? Why is idolatry such a great sin? Because this is what idolatry does. It puts a different version of God before you. The, first, the book of 1 John ends, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, when John was addressing the church in Asia Minor. He says, little children, guard yourself from idols. Why would you end a book that way? Because idolatry is what happens when you have a different version of Christ. You have what's called an antichrist. An antichrist is something that takes the place of Christ. Something that is honored and worshipped and given attention to more than Christ. That is an antichrist. And that's why when you have that, you have what's called an idolatry. An idol. And you perform what's called idolatry. And when you do that, you are exercising what's called lies. You are telling yourself, this is what will satisfy me when in, in fact it will not and you have to ask yourself, why will this give me joy? Why will I look forward to heaven where all of these kinds of people are removed? It seems kind of mean for God to give this, this list of people. Why is it that knowing who God rejects a joy for those who are in heaven? Here's why. Because in heaven, this is what will take place. Justice. Justice. Have you ever wondered why certain men or women have such influence in the world? Why do so many false teaching and idolatry takes place around us? Why are there so many people being taken advantage of? All people being taken money from by all these false prophets and false teachers? How come they're still around, Lord? Why are they still there? God, how come they are still doing what they're doing? Leading people astray, damning people to hell. Why is that taking place? And so God gives you a picture. Those people are not going to be there. They're going to be thrown in that lake of fire. In other words, in the end, God is saying, vengeance is mine. I will repay. No one gets away with anything. Justice will take place. 
in the end, this is helpful because when you're sharing the gospel to a, a person and they see all the foolishness that takes place in the world, you can tell them in the end, there will be justice. And we can look forward to that place if, because we are in Christ. God will save His people at the same time. He will remove those that are not His people. Let me end with this. In 1871, John Boudreaux wrote a book entitled The Happiness of Heaven. And in that book, he tells of a kind-hearted king who finds a blind, destitute orphan boy who was while hunting in the forest. The king takes the boy to his palace and he adopts him as his son. And he provides for his care. He ensures that the boy would receive the very best education. And the boy then becomes extremely grateful. But the boy grows up and his affection for the king fills his heart. And then one day when the boy turns 20, a surgeon performs an operation on his eyes and for the first time, he is able to see. The boy, after years of being a royal prince in the palace of his father, has been blessed with the best food, the best garden, the best libraries, the best music, the best education. But once he sees his father for the first time, all of those things pale in comparison to seeing his father face to face for the first time. Dear friends, that's what's happened to us. God has provided for us everything pertaining to life and godliness. But in the end, we will see him. We will be like him. Because we will be home. Where our Father and where Christ and where the Spirit of God is. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we look forward to that place. We look forward to that place where you will be with us. You will tabernacle with us because of Christ who dwells with us. Oh, God, we thank you that this world will be changed. This world will be renewed. We all sense the brokenness of this world. We all sense that eternity is before us. We all sense that we are meant to live forever. And yet we don't know why, because you have placed eternity in our hearts. And yet you tell us in your word that the reason we will live forever is because we were made in the image of God. And so God, save us. For those that don't know you, save them. So that they would live for an eternity, not in perishing and eternal conscious torment, but with you in eternal joy and bliss. That they would receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In his name we pray.